Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah, and here we are, episode 151. Wow. My script is a little long tonight, so we thought we'd just get into it, right? Yes, although I did have one thing to ask you. It's short. Okay. It was when I was visiting next door. My favorite Oh, the form. app, right. Yes, the app. Not Sorry. the neighbors. No, I don't visit either of our neighbors. Right. <laughs> um, I've been in one of the neighbor's homes against my will. I was pulled into the neighbor's home. Polly she, or the guy? Her name's not psychos. Polly. It's, it's Paul. Whatever. No, the, don't call him that. What if he listens to us? I'm sure he doesn't. What if he does? And if he does, he won't know we're talking about him. He's too nice. Anyway, yeah, one side is a super too nice, squeaky clean type guy who I think is a serial killer. And the other side is a family of I don't know how many people and generations in one little. And they all talk like that. Yeah, they're all smoke. Anyway, uh, cigarettes. So, no, somebody posted on Nextdoor, which caused a long thread. She said that she came home recently and someone had cleaned her lawn, all her leaves were gone and raked up and bagged up and she didn't know who had done it she asked friends and family nobody had done it and she said it was kind of weird and um half about i would say it would be about maybe even more than half the people what are you complaining about and other people like me said i wouldn't like the fact that somebody went on my property without my consent and did something right. i don't care how nice and, it's and also i don't clean up my leaves until spring because it's better for the environment yes that's helps, what, and some people pointed that out it helps too. pollinators and yes. bugs and butterflies and there was one woman who writes a column in the paper the vegan column mm-hmm. and she's always on next door and she said well what if they wanted to keep their leaves on their lawn like she Maureen said does. i wouldn't like it because i like to keep my leaves on my lawn right. because they're good nutrients. and also it's an but other people like what are you complaining about i'd be happier oh they can come over to my house anytime i, I don't think any Anyone should go on another person's property yes. and do anything without yes. permission. Yes, I and, see. That's and how I felt. Unless you're I dropping off your Christmas cookies <laughs> on the front porch. For instance, my neighbor, Dave, snow blows my driveway for me. And I appreciate that. But when I was living in Manchester, New Hampshire, the next door neighbors didn't like the length of my lawn. They were fussy. And the strip of my lawn that abutted their yard... One day I looked out my window and he was mowing it, Mm. mowing my lawn, not to help me, but because they didn't like the way my lawn looked next to their yard. And my Mm -hmm. response to that is, fuck you. Maybe I don't like the way your lawn looks. Lawns are bad for the environment. I'm anti-lawn. If I didn't have to have one, I wouldn't. They look awful. They're bad for the environment. They contribute nothing to the environment. Yeah, I don't go on other people's lawns in... I don't know. There's nothing I could really do to make them better for the environment, I guess, except for maybe plant, plant a bunch of wild native bee, plantings. Bee, but bee but also, no matter flowers. what you're, whether you are contributing to the climate crisis by having a well-manicured lawn or whether you believe in helping the environment, both of those are kind of moot. The thing is, you don't assume you're helping someone 
yeah. by going into their yard and doing something. And also, you know, whoever cleaned up the leaves didn't do it to help, quote unquote, the person. They did it because they didn't like the way it looked in their neighborhood. Well, the other theory, which we all thought is probably what happened, is a lawn care company went to the wrong house. Uh, some guy who worked for one yeah, said, oh, be. that happened a few times. That but still, that at least it's a mistake. Right. But if it was anything else, right. I think it's trespassing. And also the people responding who thought there were no problems with it all have their heads up their ass. I actually said, well, first I said, well, it doesn't matter what they were doing. You know, they were trespassing and I wouldn't like it. And then after all these people making her sound like she was ungrateful. In fact, someone even said that, oh, we should just be grateful for the deeds. I said, I think it's interesting how many people think it's okay for somebody to go on your private property and mm -hmm. do just take it upon yeah, themselves. I'm not, whatever I'm, not, they want. I'm not grateful for judgy people messing with my shit. Oh, I don't shit. see why I should feel like, gratitude about that. Lawn. And, you know, 50 years from now, when we all live on this arid, animal, bugless, birdless plane, because be people insist, yeah, I know, whatever, but because people think lawn care is so great and everybody's wondering why the shit, there aren't any birds and stuff anymore, then come back and we can talk I about it. I don't even understand lawn. Anyways, I just- Anyway, we... but should I, we just get going Yes. Here? Yes. Okay. I don't know anything about this. And you- well, and you very little about I it. I can guarantee you probably have never heard of it and most of our listeners haven't either, but it's still a good story. Good. Just lost in the fog of many stories. Okay, sources for the story are newspaper articles from the time, mostly the Lynn item from Lynn, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and Boston Globe, and Associated Press stories that appeared in newspapers, since those were all available on newspapers.com. I also paid for a one-day access to the New Hampshire Union Leader archives, which huh. only let me read 20 stories, and I wasn't going to pay for more. So uh, the union leader was a you source. You had to pick and choose. This happened in the good old days when multiple newspapers covered a case, all with different details. It would have been great to have access to the Lawrence, Massachusetts Eagle Tribune for this report, and you'll see why. But I didn't, and I wasn't going to pay, which I'll explain later. Because, you know, I usually support newspapers. Ooh. Anyway. Okay, two things before I get into it. When I worked at the New Hampshire Union Leader, we moved into a new building in the summer of 1991. There were really, really long hallways, and they were decorated with photographs the newspaper's photographers had taken over the years, enlarged and framed. One I saw every day, because it was hanging in the hallway between the newsroom and composing room near the door to the ladies' room, was one taken by the legendary Bob LaPree. It was a Ooh. woman sitting in a witness stand in a courtroom in obvious distress, crying as another woman comforted her. Ooh. Even though I haven't worked there for 12 years, that photo was imprinted on my mind because I saw it every day for the 20 years that I worked in that building. Every time you went to the bathroom. Yeah. Or the composing room, oh. which I won't get into what that is since this is another image in my mind is from earlier in my career. From December 1984 to December 1986, I worked at the Haverhill Gazette in Haverhill, Massachusetts. The entire operation was open concept, and the newsroom was only separated from the advertising department by an eight-foot or so high partition. You had to walk through advertising to get in and out of the building, go to the ladies' room, or anything else. There was one guy in the advertising department who all of us very young female reporters thought was particularly creepy. Mm. He seemed to zero in on my friend Denise, 
who is now a kick-ass associate press reporter, he'd always say, hello, Denise, you look lovely today. Or what a lovely dress you have on, Denise. That's not really how he talked, but that's the impression we used to do of him. And we'd giggle about it and do imitations of him even years later. Back then in the mid-80s, women just took for granted guys Mm. were going to be annoying and creepy. Guys took for granted that they could be. We mm-hmm. never thought to complain or call him out about mm-hmm. it. It was creepy and yet something we joked about. Yeah. That man's name was George Gurney. And with that, here we go. On the afternoon of February 15th, 1989, Jim Summers was taking his daily run with his dog, no breed or dog name available, mm. in Wyndham, New Hampshire, a suburban town near the border with Massachusetts. Summers was running on an old logging road through a wooded, weedy area known by locals as Bug Haven. Sounds like a good place to run. Well, it was on a logging road near his house. I know. I'm just saying Bug Haven. I wouldn't want to go there because I want to get bit, bit by yeah. bugs. Where okay. this is, it was a place to drink, target, shoot, cans, dump garbage, you know, that kind of place. A lot of towns mm-hmm. have them. Summers, a computer technician, saw something blew up ahead by the path. Mm-hmm. At first, he thought it was trash. But as he got closer, he saw it was a body. It's not a mannequin. It's never a mannequin or trash or a pile of clothes or all the other things people think. He could tell it was a woman, barefoot, covered in blood, wearing a sweater and pants. The night had been cold, hovering around freezing, and there had been rain and snow. Summers didn't check. He and his dog turned around and ran home where he called police. smart. Police who responded to the scene somehow got the first report as a decomposing body. Mm. It's not clear how, because Summers didn't tell the dispatcher anything the body was decomposing. Three police officers took a logging trail from near Summers' house to where the woman was found. They called for a crime scene photographer. As the photographer snapped away, the dispatcher asked twice if they needed an ambulance, and the police didn't say that they did. But then one of the officers heard the woman groan and yelled, She's alive! Get an ambulance! The woman, barely alive, was taken to St. Joseph's Hospital in Nashua, New Hampshire, where, for 24 hours, police tried to figure out who she was. She'd been shot in the head and been out in the cold for a long time. They didn't know at the time, but it had been about 15 hours. She was not expected to live. The next day, they got a report from a nearby Dunkin' Donuts that a car had been parked in its lot since the day before. They checked the car, and it belonged to Miriam Stoltz-Gurney, 48, a woman who lived in Wyndham, about four miles from where she was found, and about two miles from the Dunkin' Donuts. The distances, by the way, are all over the place in the stories, but I'm going to go by a Lynn item story that looked at the initial police reports and court documents. Police called Miriam's ex-husband, George (sighs) Gurney, to come to the hospital with them to identify her. At first, he wanted to go to the police department to talk to them, but they said, no, we need you to come to the hospital and make sure this is her. George and Miriam had been divorced for three years, but were still friendly. In fact, Marion, two days before, had left a valentine of paper flowers on the porch of his apartment in Newburyport, Massachusetts, where he lived. She was very creative and artistic and had made the valentine bouquet of paper flowers herself. Nice. Marion Stoltz Gurney, as I said, was 48. She was a longtime elementary school art teacher in Haverhill, Massachusetts, where she'd taught for 22 years. 
Haverhill is about a 20-minute drive from Wyndham, about maybe 10 or so, a little more, 12 miles. And in true New England fashion, even though they're in different states, they're part of a connected group of towns and cities, big and small, where everyone seems to have a connection with everyone else, and they're all connected in some way. All these towns and cities in that area. Yes. Marion Stoltz, which I'm going to call her from now on, first of all, because saying the hyphenated name is just too long, and second of all, just to not get her confused with George Gurney, lived in a pretty little cape. Some stories, newspaper stories, call it a ranch, but it's a cape at 11 Rock Pond Road in Wyndham, a house she'd shared with her first husband, Jack Baldwin, who she divorced in the mid-70s, and then with Gurney, who she married at the house in 1980 and divorced in 1986. Hmm. After Miriam was identified on Friday, February 17th, police went to her house. Inside, they found a scene of carnage, ripped bedding, broken items, Hmm. blood on the walls and floor and furniture, more blood that could have come from Miriam's one gunshot to the head, as awful as that was. In the backyard, they found the answer. About 40 feet from the back door, they found the body of a man, dead, wearing only his underwear and covered in blood. They soon identified him as Roger Whittemore, 51, of Swampscott, Massachusetts. He'd been beaten, stabbed, and shot, and his body had lain in the backyard for well more than a day, police determined. Police weren't loose with the details at first. As the information began to hit the press, they didn't say the body found was in the yard of the woman who'd been found shot but alive, four miles away the day before. And I remember us discussing this at the union leader, how these two incidents in Wyndham were likely connected and wondering what could possibly have gone on. Miriam Stoltz, known to her friends as Mim, was more than just a grade school teacher, a tall, vibrant blonde and a former model. She loved the arts and symphony, wrote arts columns and restaurant reviews for local newspapers like the Boston Globe and Haverhill Gazette, and had recently completed a news writing course at the University of New Hampshire. In the summer when she wasn't teaching elementary school, she taught courses at community colleges in the Merrimack Valley. She also produced a local cable TV show about the arts for kids. She was full of energy and creative ideas. She was a runner, skier, and enjoyed other athletic and outdoor pursuits. She frequently rode her bicycle the 25-mile round trip from her home in Wyndham, to her job in Haverhill. As I said, she was a former model, and she was fit and attractive. Men really liked her, and she was unapologetically happy to play the field, which I say, go marry him, you know, like a man would. She was seen four men, including her ex-husband, in February 1989. She also got a lot of unwanted attention from men. A few days before she was shot, she told her friend Jack White, an automotive columnist for the Boston Globe, that a friend had recently given her a 22 caliber Derringer to protect herself, though she told White she was just disappointed in, not afraid of, the men who pestered her, one of whom was a police officer. And Jack White did not specify if she talked about any men in particular. White, by the way, apparently wasn't one of the men she was seeing, but one of many platonic male friends she had. He'd take cars to test drive. As I said, he was an automotive columnist. He'd take them up to New Hampshire because it had a higher speed limit than Massachusetts. And he'd stop by and have tea with Miriam when he went up there. Another male friend, Hmm. Ray Barron, who was also apparently a platonic friend, said he'd known Miriam for more than 16 years and she was a very creative person and a good person. Barron, a former Boston Herald columnist and an author, lived in Nahant which is a peninsula off Lynn, Massachusetts, probably 45 minutes or so from Wyndham. 
but he said he frequently met with Miriam and gave her advice on her career and how to market her art. Mm. Yeah. He said she was interested in writing a holiday cookbook for children and also wanted to take her interest in recycling household items as crafts farther. He said she was very mm. adept at that. He mm. last talked to Miriam on January 24th, about three weeks before she was shot. She called him up and said, I've got to come in and see you. He said they have plans to discuss her art projects. He said, I'm just trying to build her up as the crafts lady of America. Roger Whittemore, the man whose body was found in Miriam's backyard, though married and the father of four adult children, was one of Miriam's four love interests in February 1989, though she told some friends she was planning to break things off. They met eight years before when he owned a Haverhill auto dealership, Whittemore Pontiac, and she bought a car from him. She continued to buy cars from him over the next six or seven Ooh. or eight years and date him. Even though he was married and she was married, but separated from George Gurney at the time they met, the two began seeing each other, bonding over their love of opera, the symphony, and fine gourmet dining. I'd like to bond with a guy over our love for Egg McMuffins and um, <laughs> and watching TV. That, well, that would be my thing. Whittemore lived with his wife, Anne, in Swampscott, a very nice town on the North Shore of Massachusetts, 15 miles north of Boston, more upscale in Tony than its gritty blue-collar neighbor, Lynn, Massachusetts. The Lynn item referred to Whittemore as prominent. In the February 18th edition of the item, the day after Whittemore's body was found, it said he was described by townspeople as an intellectual and a man who mm. generally kept to himself. After he sold his auto dealership in Haverhill, he'd gone back to school and got a bachelor degree with honors from Harvard's School of Continuing Education. He continued to take classes there towards a master's. His wife, Anne, told the Lynn item, classical music was Roger's love. That's why he went back to school. He wanted to learn more about it. He loved art and music. He didn't live the kind of lifestyle that would make enemies, and he abhorred mm. violence. Roger was over six feet tall, and stories in February 1989 said he weighed about 270 or 275 pounds, though in later stories that changed to more than 300 pounds. Ooh. I have a feeling his driver's license or something said 275, but he had gotten bigger. Big guy. And I'm just saying what his size is because it will be important later. And his wife said he rode a stationary bike and played racquetball to keep in shape. And... His wife was actually the more prominent person in Swampscott, which had a population of about 15,000. She was a former school teacher and worked as a legal secretary, but around town she was known as a member of the Swampscott Zoning Board of Appeals. She was a town meeting member, the town meeting form of government in Maine, everybody in town goes, if you have a town government and votes on the town budget. In Massachusetts, you elect town meeting members who uh -huh. represent you and go and vote. Interesting. Um, yes. She was also a former member of the Swampscott Personnel Board. Roger and Anne loved classical music and opera so much they traveled to Vienna, and I don't mean Vienna, Maine, <laughs> Vienna, Austria. The Lynn item also noted that Whittemore had recently written a number of letters to local newspapers commenting on state and federal mandates that the town convert its primary sewage treatment plant to secondary treatment a move he believed was not necessary. I think that's just funny. It's, that's in the article yeah. about who he is. Yeah. 
On February 15, 1989, Whittemore told his wife that he had business in New Hampshire and would be staying overnight. Mm -hmm. His family had owned 140 acres of land on a mountain in Lineboro, New Hampshire, west of Nashua, since before the Revolutionary War. Ooh. He was going up there to meet with Lem Bowles, a friend to whom he'd sold a rundown house on the property for a dollar the year before. What he didn't tell Anne was that he was also going to see Miriam, and the two, with Bowles, were planning to dine at the Hancock Inn in Hancock, New Hampshire that night. Yeah. Which is in western New Hampshire, a little farther north of Wyndham and west in the mountains. Uh-huh. Bowles was aware of the longtime relationship between Roger and Miriam. Miriam was planning on doing a restaurant review of the, the Fox Tavern or something at the Hancock, and at least it is now. I don't know what it was back then. Hancock was probably well over an hour from where Miriam lived in Wyndham, and it was snowing. So Bulls mm. called Whittemore and told him that they probably wouldn't want to drive all the way up there that night. That's the last time Bulls talked to Roger. He assumed Roger was going to spend the night at Miriam's in Wyndham. Roger and Miriam had dinner at Hampstead Manor in Methuen, Massachusetts, which is a town adjacent to Wyndham, that night. Miriam had told friends that she was going to break up with Roger at that uh-huh. dinner, but she apparently didn't, and she told them prior to this. And I also wonder how that was going to work out with their original plans of going up to have dinner with Lem Bowles. But yeah. maybe she was going to do it after, or maybe yeah. she didn't know they were going to have dinner with Lem Bowles. Who knows? They left the restaurant about 10 p.m. and went to Miriam's house. The neighborhood is a quiet one, very residential, but sometime around midnight, neighbors heard a man in some distress yelling, I'm a father of four. They didn't call police, and that's not a criticism of the neighbors. They likely thought it was a fight or argument, and as we've talked about in other episodes, like the Amy Fitzgerald one, people are hesitant to call the police unless they know for sure that something bad is happening. They don't want to embarrass their neighbors, or more importantly, embarrass themselves. Mm -hmm. If somebody's just having a quarrel and yelling at each other. I hear people yelling all the time out my window. Yeah. Walking by on the street and whatever. In the days after Roger was killed and Miriam was left for dead, police kept many of the details close to their vest, as I said earlier. That first day, they just said they were treating it as a homicide and that the two incidents were related, but they wouldn't say how. New Hampshire Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Howard did say, however, that they were pursuing several leads. They also said it would take an autopsy scheduled for that Sunday to determine how Whittemore had died, a clue to reporters that there was probably some details about his death that were important but not being talked about. By Monday, reporters knew that Whittemore had been shot in the abdomen and Miriam in the head. Police had not released the fact that Whittemore had also been beaten and stabbed Mm. 17 or 18 times. Miriam was still in critical condition under police guard at St. Joseph's Hospital in Nashua. By then... Even though police weren't saying much, and it was only two days after Roger's body was found, rumors of a possible love triangle motive were mm-hmm. circulating. Ann Whittemore, Roger's wife, told the Lynn Item that she didn't believe it. Miriam was a business friend of Roger, she said. Mm-hmm. She'd bought a bunch of cars from him. Mm, Ann had talked to her on the phone a couple times, but never met her in person. Ann said she even adopted a couple of kittens of ours about five years ago. Anne said her husband's death was senseless, and she and anyone who knew him couldn't begin to imagine a motive, and no one who knew Miriam could either. Police had found Valentine's flowers to Miriam from George Gurney at the house, 
and the press was reporting that Gurney was saying he and Miriam had been trying to patch up their relationship. Uh. He, he told this to the police when they first talked to him, and he also couldn't manage to keep his pie hole shut to reporters. One problem is that he worked selling ads for the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, which had won a Pulitzer the year before and was all over him like a cat on a pork chop. Gurney was happy to discuss the case with the newspaper's reporting staff. More on this later. (laughs) On Monday, New Hampshire Assistant Attorney General Michael Ramsdell told reporters that they were pursuing leads and had several suspects, but he wouldn't offer any specifics. Police also confirmed that there were signs of a struggle in Marion's house, including blood on the floor, walls, and furniture. Ramsdell said, We are actively pursuing the leads that we have trying to piece together what happened, which I think is always a good thing. It's what you're supposed to do, buddy. Yeah. The day after Ramsdell said that, February 23rd, Roger Whittemore's funeral was held at Immaculate Conception Church in Lynn, Massachusetts. A report in that afternoon's Lynn evening item said there were more questions than answers about the case a week after the pair were shot, Mm -hmm. including where the weapon was and what kind of gun it was. The newspaper said many were speculating that it would have taken more than one assailant to kill Whittemore because he was such a big guy. I argue with that. I don't think just because someone's 300 pounds, they're going to be quicker or stronger than someone who has a gun or be able to ward off a beating or stabbing. He was woken up surprised. I mean, he was in his underwear. Just because he's big, like I said, doesn't mean he's strong and quick. He could have been woefully out of shape. That's not the last time this will come up. I think it's so a they rode the stationary bike. Yeah, and played racquetball. And you don't even know, like, when people say that, like, well, I had a date once with a guy who called himself a marathoner, and it turned out he had <laughs> run one marathon years before. You know, fuck that. Well, he wasn't lying. Everyone was saying the assailant must have been someone local, since Thug Haven, the area where Miriam was found, was known for locals. I don't always agree with that either. To Massachusetts City people, it may seem like Bughaven was off the beaten path, but those roads are well-traveled, those little two lanes in that area. Yeah. And it was off Route 111, which is a major thoroughfare between southern New Hampshire and that part of Massachusetts, close to Interstate 93. And it doesn't take a lot for someone to turn off a main road onto a woods road if they're looking for some privacy to shoot someone or dump a body. So I don't always agree with that. Oh, it must have been a local, because who else would have known about that? Well, you can stumble upon a place if you're looking for a place. Two days later, on February 25th, New Hampshire Assistant Attorney General Michael Ramsdell told the press that Wyndham and New Hampshire State Police were actively pursuing leads, and we do have an active investigation in progress. Ramsdell would not confirm the Lawrence (laughs) Eagle Tribune report that Miriam and Roger were dating each other. He only would say that they knew each other. By this point, the newspapers couldn't resist not only calling Miriam a former model in every story, but also pointing out that she was twice divorced. Mm. After that first flurry of attention in late February, early March, the media interest died down for a while. Miriam was in a coma, which she emerged from 10 days after she was shot, but remained in critical condition. It was going to be a tough road. She'd suffered severe brain trauma, the bullet slicing the connection between the two sides of her brain. At first, she couldn't speak or do many other things, walk, use her arms, anything. It wasn't clear if she knew anything about what happened or would ever be able to say what happened. Even though the house and garage were a bloody mess, it didn't seem to yield up much evidence to police. 
While DNA evidence had found a use as an investigative tool in England and was just creeping into the U.S., like most places, it was unheard of in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. You will not hear the word DNA used in relation to this story in any context except the one I'm using right now. It wasn't even on anyone's radar in 1989. They did determine the blood types of the blood they found in the house and garage. They matched Whittemore's and Miriam's, but there didn't seem to be any from a third contributor. A note on blood testing, by the way. When a crime scene is covered with it, they don't test every single drop of blood, but they take it from various places, so it's not a perfect science. Mm -hmm. There were also fingerprints, including a bloody one on the garage door Mm. and another on the steering wheel of Miriam's car, but so far these didn't yield any good leads either. They found the military dog tags of Marion's first husband, Jack Baldwin, and seized them as evidence, but didn't check them for fingerprints or anything. Mm. Beyond that, the police were stumped. A police source told the Lynn Daly item that they had three solid suspects and that one of them had tried to enter St. Joseph's Hospital, where Miriam was, in the weeks after the shooting. It was never clear who all the suspects were, though one can speculate that they were her boyfriends. Yeah. One of them, Tom Fox of Methuen, Massachusetts, later acknowledged that he was a suspect. Another boyfriend was Charles Maycumber, a doctor from Concord, New Hampshire, but he never talked to the press. And it's never clear if he was a suspect, though he likely was. Baldwin, her first husband, also never talked to the press. George Gurney, Marion's ex-husband, in the days immediately after the shooting, wasn't a suspect, according to police. I'm not sure why not. But mostly because the guy didn't know how to keep his pie holes shut, he became one quickly. One thing about running your mouth is it gets police attention, especially if they don't have a lot of stuff to go on. Despite all the blood and destruction, it seems like they had trouble digging up a forensic case. And George handed himself to them on a silver platter. When New Hampshire State Police Sergeant Arthur Wiggin first called George on the day after Miriam's body was found, when they found her car and figured out who she was, and asked him to identify her, George said the two of them were close to a reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Wigan accompanied Gurney to St. Joseph's Hospital in Nashua to identify Miriam. The next day, when Gurney was told by New Hampshire State Police Corporal Timothy Pickle that another body had been found, Mm. George just said, oh, and didn't ask who it was for at least 10 minutes, Pickle later said. That's weird. When Gurney asked Pickle, he asked who the other person was who had been shot. But Pickle hadn't said the other person had been shot. When he asked Gurney how he knew the other person had been shot, Gurney said he just assumed the person was since Marion had been. When Pickle identified the dead guy as Roger Whittemore, Gurney said, I know Roger Whittemore. I caught him in bed with my wife and I don't like him. (laughs) He told Pickle that a few years before, Christmas time, 1985, Gurney had brought some Christmas presents for Marion to the house. They were separated at the time and he wasn't living there anymore. Miriam answered the door in her robe, and somehow Gurney saw, it's not clear how, Whittemore lounging on her bed naked. Ooh. George threatened to kill Whittemore and told Pickle he wished he'd beaten him up, but instead he dropped the Christmas presents on the floor <laughs> and left. How big was George Gurney? We'll get to that, but he was okay. uh, he was about 5, 10, or 11, and they say he weighed 145 pounds, but I would guess he weighed <laughs> a little more, I would say, okay. so uh, he was 60 or more. Okay. Because he, he wasn't real skinny, He but he wasn't a big guy. Gurney's description to Pickle of Miriam's other boyfriends was friendly, but of Whittemore, he said, 
he's real bad, a sleazeball. Hmm. Gurney also said to Pickle that he thought it took more than one person to kill Whittemore, quote, because he took one hell of a beating, unquote. Hmm. Pickle hadn't said at that point that Whittemore had been beaten up. Interesting. Pickle asked Gurney how he knew that Whittemore had been beaten, and Gurney said that Wigan, the trooper who'd accompanied him to the hospital the day before, told him that, and that Wigan said it could have been a hit, and that Roger Whittemore and maybe Miriam were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh... Wigan, though, said he never said any of that to Gurney. Gurney told Pickle that he was homesick with a sinus infection on February 15th, the day of the attacks on Miriam and Roger. In fact, he said that he and Miriam had had plans for lunch that day, but then he canceled because of the sinus infection. He said that aside from going to the drugstore to fill a prescription, he stayed in his apartment in Newburyport. On February 16th, the day Marion was found, George said he called in sick to his job at the Lawrence Eagle Tribune and saw his doctor. Whether cops followed up with the pharmacy and doctor to see if any of this was true is not clear. My advice to George at this point, get a fucking lawyer and shut (laughs) your pie hole, which he didn't do. Neither one. After repeating the details of his whereabouts several times to Pickle, Gurney asked Pickle, when are you going to ask me the big question? Did I hurt her? George told the cops, (laughs) as I said, that he was close to a reconciliation with Miriam, but also said that she'd been dating him less and less and that he felt crushed. He said it was degrading and it hurt him. He said if he found a man in bed with her, he would kill him, but he Mm. wouldn't hurt her because she was too beautiful to hurt. Mm. He also told Pickle he wished he had an alibi. This was all in the days right after Miriam was identified and Roger's body was found, and as I said, Gurney wasn't a suspect. And again, I'm not sure why not, but his remarks made Pickle a little suspicious of him. Yeah. Yeah. Gurney also called St. Joseph's Hospital after Marion was taken in and identified himself as her husband, Mr. Stoltz, and asked if she could talk. It's not clear if this was before or after the police had 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 him identify her. On March 8th, about two weeks after the attacks, New Hampshire State Police formally interviewed Gurney. By now, he was definitely a suspect. During this interview, they gave George a lie detector test, which he failed. But they said later it wasn't enough to arrest him on. No kidding, since it's not admissible in court and lie detectors are bullshit. So no, you can't arrest someone because they quote-unquote failed a lie detector. And more on the lie detector later. Despite the failed lie detector, police were getting nowhere with George, so they resorted to the tried-and-true tactic of lying to him. Uh. They told George that his fingerprints were found on the gun, which, when you think about it, was a mistake if George really did it. He'd know they were lying because they actually never found the gun. The shooter got rid of it. Police had determined the murder weapon was probably Miriam's twenty-two caliber Derringer, which George told Pickle he had given to her. Remember how she told friend Jack White in January that a friend had given her a gun to protect herself? Well, there you go. It's not clear if George really gave it to her or if George just said he's the one who gave it to her. But in any case, if George was the killer and he knew, like, for instance, he threw the gun into the Merrimack River or something, then he knew they were lying if they said they found his prints on the gun. Like, why lie? Yeah about the gun when you don't have the gun. And George didn't buy that lie, and he didn't confess or whatever. (laughs) They also told him that Miriam had come out of her coma and was pointing the finger at him, but he didn't buy that either. 
She had just come out of her coma at that point. She wasn't able to talk or anything. When the investigators confronted him with the possibly incriminating statements he'd made, Gurney told them, I can't explain everything now. I'll explain it later. Then he went home and he wrote it all out on what police later described as a memo or no. Police found it when they were going through his garbage. The memo included notes on the conversations Gurney had with police and what police described as a checklist. This is one of the things I remember so well from this case, us talking about the checklist in the newsroom. My memory, however, is that they found a to-do kind of list he'd written before the shootings and that we joked about how if you're going to kill someone and need a to-do list to burn it or something after. After that, anytime I saw a true crime documentary or read an article or book where someone who killed someone made a to-do list, I thought about George Gurney. But reading the reporting on this now, all these years later, the information about the list, which wasn't released, of course, when they found it, but much later, was that Gurney had written it after the fact, after he talked to police and took the polygraph, and it didn't have things like get rope and gun and wear camouflage which is what I remembered, it was more notes to himself after talking to the police and what the police had said. The entire note itself and what it actually says is another thing lost to history, but relying on reporting from when details of the note were later made public, long after George wrote it, it was a list of lies he told and details he couldn't explain. It had things like, because I'm a salesman, I'm good at lying. <laughs> it looks like I'm all they have. I may be in deep shit. Now, this could be some kind of evidence of guilt, but it could also easily be him writing down the stuff police had said to him and him trying to sort things out. Um, yes, I would love yes. to see that note. I really wish the reporters who had access to it had written more about it. I remember me talking to Nancy West, a reporter who wrote a lot of these stories in the newsroom about it and us joking about it, but I do not have it. In the weeks and months after Miriam was shot and Roger killed, police interviewed George four times. Pickle, the New Hampshire state corporal, said that George was nervous, paranoid, and talkative, but also always cooperative every time they talked. Pickle said later that during each interview, George volunteered potentially incriminating information. Hmm allowed himself to be photographed and fingerprinted, and gave police his fishing knife, which was never linked to the crimes. And again, George, you idiot. You should have gotten a lawyer from the... You know how people are. Yeah. I know. The cops aren't the only ones George couldn't stop yapping to. Yeah. Remember, he worked for a newspaper. <laughs> One that was still basking in the glow of its 1988 Pulitzer Prize. George, who, as I said, sold ads for the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, gave several interviews to reporters there. Those Pulitzer Prize-winning reporters couldn't get enough of him. Pro tip, if your ex is shot and another person killed, the boyfriend who you resent, for instance, the reporters asking you about it aren't doing it to be caring friends. Just saying. I didn't have access to the Eagle Tribune stories, but other newspapers quoted parts of them. When Miriam and Roger were first identified, right after the attack, George told reporters at the Eagle Tribune that he and Miriam still had a relationship and had dated each other since their divorce and that they were getting back together. He described how they'd exchanged Valentine's gifts. She dropped off the paper flowers that she made at his Newburyport Mass apartment on Valentine's Day, and he'd had real flowers delivered to her Wyndham, New Hampshire house. 
He told the reporters that Miriam and Roger were both lovely people, and he couldn't Mm. understand why anyone would want to kill them. Not telling them the stuff he told the cops, like (laughs) about how Roger was a sleazeball and a bad guy, and about finding Roger in Miriam's bed at Christmas 1985, and that how actually he'd like to kill Roger. He didn't say any of that. George also mentioned to police shortly after the, the attacks that he'd been told by reporters at the Eagle Tribune that Roger had also been stabbed. But it turns out that George mentioned it to the reporters, not the other way around. Hmm. When he told reporter Susie Forrest that Roger had been stabbed, she asked George if he knew how many times. She knew because a police source had told her, but she hadn't mentioned that to George. George knew it was 17 or 18. Like I said, he told them he'd heard that from the police. But when Susie, like a good reporter, asked the police about it, they said they'd never told George anything about Uh Roger being stabbed. When police confronted Gurney about it, he said it was the reporter who told him that Whittemore had been stabbed. I know that's very confusing, but that's what happens when people lie. George gave several interviews to the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, which are lost to history, at least to me, because the papers are on newspaper.com, and I don't want to get a subscription to see if they have archives available. Why don't I? You may ask. I, who is so supportive of newspapers? Yeah. Well, a little tangent here. Remember how I said they won a Pulitzer? That was in 1988 for the coverage of the Willie Horton case. Some people of a certain age from this part of the country who follow politics may recognize that name. Willie Horton was a convicted murderer who was let out on parole while Michael Dukakis was governor of Massachusetts. While Horton was on parole, he killed again. Dukakis, who was running for president in 1988, said at some point he supported the parole program, which, of course, the George H.W. Bush people, Uh especially Lee Atwater, used to scare the racist shit out of America's white folks since Horton was black. The Eagle Tribune unwittingly helped this cause by doing a series of articles about the parole program, which I read since I used to pick up the Eagle Tribune to read. Even at the time, with my faulty awareness of race and how the media depicts it, I thought the Eagle Tribune's coverage weighed heavily on racial tropes and politician opinions instead of explaining the parole and how the criminal justice system should work. Yes. My guess as to why it won the Pulitzer is the series was powerful enough to help tank poor Mike Dukakis's presidential campaign. Yes. I don't know if nowadays that reporting would fly. I didn't like it at the time. A group of people at the paper shared the Pulitzer, and they all wrote it for the rest of their careers. Susie Forrest, for instance, who died young at the age of 42 in 2001, went Mm -hmm. on to work at the New York Daily News and other New York City area newspapers. Even where I live, here in central Maine, there's a woman in a nearby town who was a reporter there and on the Pulitzer group who writes books now and describes herself as a Pulitzer Prize winner, which I guess I would too, but still. Mm -hmm. So that's why I won't pay for the Lawrence Eagle Tribune. Mm. Okay, now where were we? As the police zeroed in on George, Miriam slowly regained some of her abilities, though it was slow going. As I said, she woke from her coma after 10 days, but she couldn't move, cry, or talk. She, She had little memory of what had happened to her. 
She was listed in critical condition at St. Joe's in Nashua for 36 days, then in early April was upgraded to serious condition and transferred to Northeast Rehabilitation Hospital in Salem, New Hampshire. Police didn't disclose where she was, not even to most of her friends, or what her condition was. They never even publicly said that she had come out of the coma. Her parents, up from Yonkers, New York, brought her, ma her mail and visited, as well as two friends, Betty Jo Knapp and Sydney Tibbetts, who were designated her caretakers. Other than that, even well-wishing teachers and students from her job in Haverhill, who sent cards, had no idea where the cards were being sent. The bullet, which entered her brain behind her left ear, then lodged in her brain, as I said, had cut a path between the two <sighs> sections of her brain. Almost like giving her a lobotomy. But slowly, she began to recover, regaining movement on her right side, regaining speech and some memory. On March 7th, 1989, the day before George Gurney had the formal interview with police where he took the polygraph, the Lynn item had a front page story with the headline, they're getting away with murder. Reporter and columnist David Liskio cited seven cases over the past 18 months in Lynn or involving people from Lynn that had yet to be solved, including Marion Stoltz and Roger Whittemore. So I guess it's the Lynn area because Roger was from Swamp Scott. Yeah, and yeah. Marion and Roger were counted as one of the seven cases. In it, he noted that investigators were focusing on the Merriam-Roger love triangle. Liskio's story could have been a lot better. Of course, he mentions one victim as being last seen with two black guys while not mentioning the races of anybody in the other six cases in the story. That's neither here nor there as far as this goes. But of course, what the fuck? Typical. Yeah. He also, in his list of reasons why investigations of murders are going nowhere, cites things that make sense like departments not communicating with each other. But he also cites annoying things like low morale among cops because of the revolving door aspect of the system in which people who they oh, arrest Christ. get out on bail or whatever. And I'm really annoyed by articles that have such a superficial and erroneous view of the criminal justice system. It's funny, too, how he discusses some crimes as getting less attention, for instance, ones that are mob hits, but what he doesn't cite is crimes against women, or a sex worker, whatever, getting less attention, so he really misses the boat. None of the issues he cites seem to be a factor in the Miriam Stoltz-Roger Whitmore case. I'd say the biggest problem with this case being solved, that you'll see as things go on, is that they didn't do a great job of scene investigating or forensics investigating. <laughs> Instead, they focused on the suspects. Which they like to do. Right. And, and you do, like, if you can fun. prove a suspect was at the scene, but you end up with a circumstantial case in a lot of ways with no evidence. On May 1st, three months after Miriam was shot, the Lynn Daily Item reported that police sources said they had a suspect and that an arrest was imminent. Ooh. But the four-paragraph story had no other information. On June 4th, a month later, the Boston Globe's Bob Holer reported that Miriam possibly knew her attacker, but wasn't able to articulate to police who it was. Holer described Marion as lying in an undisclosed medical center under police protection and a cloak of secrecy. He didn't attribute the information on her possibly knowing her attacker, and later in the story said it's unclear if she recalls the attack, so it could be he's just speculating. On June 25, 1989, more than four months after she was shot, Miriam was actively talking to investigators about the attack, the Lawrence Eagle Tribune reported. That story didn't have details either, at least from what I could find. As I said, I didn't read the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, just other newspapers reporting on what the Lawrence Eagle Tribune had reported. Then, on July 1st, 1989, 
Miriam was brushing her teeth in her hospital bathroom, looking at herself in the mirror with Nurse Cheryl Klenner at her side. Miriam's face suddenly went pale, and she said, That bastard George, he did this to me. She threw her toothpaste down and began pounding on the sink and sobbing. On July 5th, the Lynn Daily Item reported that Miriam had named her attacker, but the paper hadn't found out who it was. On July 6th, nearly five months after Roger Whittemore was killed and Marion Stoltz was shot, George Gurney was on his way home from work at 5.15 p.m. when Trooper Dennis Marks of the Massachusetts State Police pulled him over on Route 114 and arrested him on charges of being a fugitive from justice. Marks said, there was no panic. He went peacefully. The Massachusetts police hmm. couldn't charge him, of course, with the attacks on Miriam and Roger Whittemore because that would be up to New Hampshire police. But New Hampshire had issued a warrant for his arrest on charges of murder, attempted murder, and aggravated kidnapping. New Hampshire still had the death penalty, but none of the charges were capital crimes, Michael Ramsdell, the New Hampshire assistant attorney general in charge of the case, said. I'm not sure why these wouldn't be capital crimes, given that the attacks were obviously premeditated, but the ways of the death penalty are so confusing and varied, who knows? The newspapers hmm. didn't elaborate on why they weren't capital crimes. George was taken to the Massachusetts State Police Barracks in North Andover, Mass., where he spent the night and then was arraigned on the fugitive charge in Lawrence District Court the next morning, July 7th, which I believe was your 24th birthday. Yes. Michael Ramsdell, the AAG, said that Miriam said that George burst in on her and Roger in her bedroom, brandishing a rifle and dressed in camouflage clothing. She either reached for the 22 pistol that was in her bedside drawer or he knew it was there and grabbed it. She told police it was that gun that was used in the shootings, and apparently the bullets found in her and Roger supported that it was indeed a 22, though they never found the gun. In a story right after the shootings, her friend Jack White, as I already said, said a friend had given her the gun because guys were bugging her, even though she said she felt she didn't really need it. Now that Gurney was arrested a few months later, the Boston Globe, without attribution, said in an article that an unidentified friend gave her the gun because of George's harassment, which may hmm. have been from the affidavit. If it was, I would take that with a grain of salt. Yes. They may have just taken what Jack White said and twisted it around. And every do. time you say Jack White, I think of Jack White of the White Stripes. Yes. But I don't know this enough of a... their music to make a joke. So Yeah, this is a different guy. I know. And you may not remember, but George apparently told police that he gave Marion the gun. Maybe he did, or maybe he just said that. So if it was found and had any evidence that pointed to him, he could explain oh, it. In any yeah. case, pick your story. The tale Miriam told was harrowing. George burst in, as I said, dressed in battle fatigues and carrying a rifle. He also got, somehow got Marion's pistol. He put a pillowcase mm -hmm. over Roger's head, tied Roger's hands behind his back with a belt, and forced the two of them downstairs. Roger kept yelling, I'm the father of four. I mm. want to do more for them. Mm. As Miriam, in the words of one account, cowered on the stairs, George beat Roger with fireplace tongs, Mm. shot him and stabbed him it's not clear in what order george then made miriam get in her car where he drove her around for two hours begging her to leave the area with him mm. she refused and so he took her to bug haven where she was later found and he shot her 
The story changes a little later as Marion recovers more memory, but that's the initial version, and some things don't change. The 22, the fireplace tongs, Roger yelling, the drive with George. Gurney pleaded not guilty and then refused to waive extradition. His attorney in Massachusetts, Michael Seddon, said later it was because George wanted to be held in the Brentwood Jail in Rockingham County, where he would be tried, and not taken to the state prison in Concord. I'm not sure if that was the real reason, but it took about 10 days to straighten it out and for him to finally agree to waive extradition. In fact, it had gotten to the point where Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis and New Hampshire Governor, um, what's his name? John Sununu. Yeah. We're doing the exchange of paperwork stuff, but then George waived extradition so they didn't have to. And my guess is there could be a lot of reasons why he would want to delay. I don't know the likelihood he would have been brought up to the prison in Concord because most people who are held before trial are held in the county jail where they're charged. So I think he was delaying for another reason. The Lawrence Eagle Tribune put George Gurney on unpaid leave of absence the day of his Ooh. arraignment. William Lucy, business manager of the paper, told reporters who called and asked about it, Our only reaction is that it is in the hands of the criminal justice system at this stage, and we have no further comment on it. Meanwhile, there was plenty for reporters to write about. Michael Ramsdell, the New Hampshire AAG, credited Miriam's willpower. When she was first found, they didn't think she'd live. Then they thought if she did recover, she wouldn't be in any condition to help the case. But she proved everyone wrong. Ramsdell said, Her recovery has been incredible. After being in a coma for one week, she has steadily progressed to the point where she was able to talk about the incidents that led to the shootings. He said that she was still making progress in recovering. Michael Seddon, Gurney's lawyer, said that Gurney was bewildered by the charges. Seddon hmm. said, He stated that he had no knowledge of these crimes, and he was amazed that his ex-wife identified him as the perpetrator of these crimes. He has cooperated with police from the beginning. He accompanied police to the hospital to identify her when she was in a coma. And this huh. is Maureen again. If I were the shooter, I'd do that too. I'd want to <laughs> see what kind of shape she was in and if she reacted at all. And, yeah. you know, said and continued, once it was clear she was going to come out of the coma and that there was a chance she could identify the individual who attacked her, Mr. Gurney made no attempt to leave the area he was living. However, Judge Russo, and that's the judge in Massachusetts, held him without bail, even in light of that. And this is Maureen again. I'm sure Seddon, who's an attorney, knows that people charged with murder are rarely let out on bail, and the fact that he was being held in awaiting extradition and hadn't formally been charged with murder yet, and I'm sure the judge in Massachusetts did not want it on his plate if he let Gurney out on a New Hampshire case and then Gurney took off or something. So Seddon added that Gurney was delighted when Miriam came out of the coma. He, more than anyone, wanted her to come out of the coma so that she could identify the person who attacked her so that he would no longer be a suspect. Sutton told the union leader, He's up. He feels very confident that he will eventually be found not guilty. He is happy with the fact that many people who are old friends of his have come forward and offered their support to help him in any way they can. Hmm. He has a circle of supportive friends, and I think he looks forward to going back and getting this behind him. Sutton said George believes Marion is confused because of her head injury, and he, hmm. quote, continues to be surprised that she identifies him as the assailant. He doesn't understand why she's doing this. That's why he's anxious to get back to New Hampshire now and make these arrangements. <laughs> and I'm sure Seddon and Gurney's New Hampshire attorney, Albert Shear, told Gurney to keep his goddamn pie hole shut. 
But George couldn't help himself and gave a jailhouse interview to Lawrence Eagle Tribune reporter <laughs> Susie Forrest. We don't have access to the entire article from the Eagle Tribune, but other newspapers quoted it. And some of the tidbits are, George said he doesn't own camouflage clothing and hasn't since he was in the military in the 1950s. He served in the Korean War. He also said... He believes her story because she is the heroine. I'm glad for her that she's doing so well, but I just don't know why she's saying it was me. It was not me. He also said that he and Miriam weren't having sex. He said, they're talking like this is some kind of fatal attraction. She confided in me and about the men in her life. She came to me for advice about <laughs> them. I'm not denying that there was some jealousy when the breakup first happened, but it's been watered down over the years. He also said, I'm not psychotic. I am not Rambo. I don't lose control. I could never hurt anyone, especially mm. Mim. I don't doubt her story, but she's got the wrong guy. Mm. People on both sides have plenty to say after George's arrest. Miriam's friend Ray Barron said that when he first met George, he took a look at me and I felt resentment in him. I felt he did not like me. When Miriam asked mm. Ray what he thought of George, Ray told her that he thought maybe she spent too much time talking about him, Ray, to George, and she probably shouldn't talk about him that much anymore. Ray described George as a quiet guy, a loner, who never cracked a joke. He said that George Ooh. had sold ads for a North Shore newspaper before quitting when he and Miriam got married and later sold cars for a while for Ray Whittemore, but didn't like it. The Boston Globe also says, without saying where it came from, that George for a while worked for Big Al's, a gun store in Seabrook, New Hampshire. It's funny, no one in any story says George worked for the Haverhill Gazette, but I know he was there from when I started working there in December 1984 until I left in December 1986, and he probably went to the Eagle Tribune from there. I know that while all this was going on, I told people at the union leader, including Nancy West, who was doing a lot of stories that he worked there and that I knew him, but I don't remember anyone asking me too much about it, and there is not one story anywhere that says he worked for the Haverhill Gazette. Weird. Which I just think is weird, yeah. Ray Barron said that George and Miriam were a contrast in personal styles, and George couldn't understand why his, quote, lively, creative wife was always working on a possible book or trying to invent new household articles or craft projects. Ray said that once the marriage went sour, Miriam had trouble getting George out of the house, which she mm. owned. Ray said she felt sorry for the guy, and he was leaning on her. Mona Spaulding, George's landlady Newberry Newburyport, where George had lived since he and Miriam split up four years before, since George referred to Miriam as his wife and said they were married but living apart. Mm. He said, I had no idea until recently the two were divorced. He said they loved each other but couldn't live together. She described George as a methodical hmm. man with a neat appearance. She mm. said Miriam visited, but George never introduced them, and she didn't even know her name. She also said, I know George was very much in love with her, it would energize him every time he knew she would be visiting. He'd prepare the porch area for a romantic candlelight dinner. Mm. Another neighbor, who said she'd first met Gurney ten years before, said he was very strange. He had a gun and liked to show it and talk about it. The Whittemore family didn't have a lot to say when George was arrested. Just that they were happy there was an arrest and they'd withhold other comments until after everything was settled. On July 17th, George Gurney finally signed his extradition papers and was taken to Rockingham County Jail in Brentwood, New Hampshire. That same day, New Hampshire Attorney General John Arnold told Nancy West of the union leader about Gurney failing the polygraph back in March. Arnold griped that the polygraph may have been compromised by a published report 
saying that Whittemore had been beaten with a fireplace tool and stabbed when investigators had not released that information. He said when they gave Gurney the polygraph, he already knew that stuff and told police he read about it in the Lawrence Eagle Tribune. Um, remember how the day after Marion's body was found, George mentioned this stuff to state trooper Tim Pickles? But Arnold said that the cops giving George the polygraph thought they were giving him one based on information only the murderer could have known and weren't aware oh, it geez. had been in the newspaper. Even if Gurney hadn't said something to Pickles the day after Marion was found, given that George worked at the Lawrence Eagle Tribune and gave several interviews in the weeks after the attacks, You'd think police would be especially aware of it and be checking what George said in the papers. And then other papers were quoting him too. But somehow, apparently, they weren't. Even though Susie Forrest had asked the police about the knife stuff and whether they'd told George, and this happened before the polygraph. So Arnold said his office was investigating the leak and two other leaks he believes could have jeopardized the case. As Nancy West points out in her story, although police sometimes huh. use polygraph tests during investigations, the results are not admissible as evidence in New Hampshire courts. Maureen adds that the only thing that compromised the polygraph is that the whole thing is bullshit, and Arnold acting like it means something <laughs> shows how bullshit the prosecution side of the criminal justice system is, that they bullshit continue the narrative of polygraphs being in any way any indicator of anything. Arnold said he believes the leaks were made by a police officer, but he's not certain if it was a New Hampshire or Massachusetts officer. He also griped that the Eagle Tribune reported on June 25th that the police were talking to Miriam when the cops had been careful to not even say she was out of her coma. When they decided to arrest Gurney, someone tipped the Eagle Tribune off the morning of the arrest that they were going to do it. Arnold said, we are going to take the appropriate steps to ascertain where the leaks came from. He said the responsible police officer could be charged with obstructing justice or simply reprimanded. It depends on the motivation for leaking the information. It is not my intention to create a big fanfare or hang someone for doing it. Whether it would serve a purpose to publicly chastise someone, I reserve the right to make that determination down the road. Arnold would not say how the investigation would be conducted or if he will press the newspaper to provide further details, which Nancy West pointed out in her story could raise First Amendment questions. She added that there are no guidelines for releasing information following a homicide, but George already knew all this shit and told them he already knew all this shit. The Eagle Tribune's executive editor, Dan Warner, told the union leader he was not aware of any investigation by state officials. He said, The New Hampshire Attorney General may talk about leaks, but I talk about aggressive news reporting. Mm. The next day, New Hampshire Assistant Attorney General Michael Ramsdell said it wasn't the Eagle Tribune that printed the information that Gurney said he read that compromised the investigation. It was another paper, but he wouldn't say what one, which I think he's just bullshitting. The polygraph was March 8th, about two weeks after the shootings. The Eagle Tribune by then had run information about the stabbings and more. And if you remember, as I said, George told the reporters he got it from the cops and the cops said, no, he didn't. And the Lynn item had info too. And they were one of the papers among many that quoted the Eagle Tribune story as did the union leader, which also had stuff. And I read in a Lynn item story that the Wyndham, New Hampshire Police Department suspended police chief Norman Crawford over a feud with the Dairy News over the case, though I couldn't find out what that was all about, so maybe it was the Dairy News that was the problem. In any case, it sounds like at this point, the AG's office was just trying to cover up their own bullshit 
And maybe the police should read a fucking newspaper when they've got something like this going on, especially if their lead suspect works for one. I think it was just cops not telling other cops what was going on and shit. If I were investigating a homicide case, I would be reading what, especially somebody like George Gurney, who couldn't keep his mouth shut, would read what he says to the newspaper. On July 20th, George Gurney pleaded not guilty to the charges in Rockingham County Superior Court. And again, they were charges of murder, attempted murder, and kidnapping. The trial was set for that October. Shortly after, Gurney talked once again to the Lord Siegel Tribune, in a jailhouse interview, saying <laughs> that the trial date was too soon and it wasn't enough time to prepare his defense. He said the state had six months to prepare the case against him and his lawyer should at least have that much time. In mid-August, there was a flurry of excitement when a five-year-old girl found a gun near Marion Stoltz's house in Wyndham. The kid brought it home and her mother was like, what the fuck? <laughs> it turns out, though, it wasn't the gun used to shoot Roger Whittemore or Marion Stoltz. It belonged to a police officer. Oh, jeez. Wyndham Police Chief Norman Crawford, whose suspension apparently was over at this point, said the officer had been disciplined and wouldn't say anything else about it except, this doesn't concern anybody but the family, the little girl, and the Wyndham Police Department. <laughs> Michael Ramsdell, the New Hampshire Assistant Attorney General, said he knew nothing about the gun and considered it an internal Wyndham Police Department matter. Oh, okay. My guess is that if it was a police officer's gun, it's not a twenty-two, so they knew it wasn't the one yeah. in the shooting because they have bigger guns. But how the fuck does a police officer lose his gun in a suburban neighborhood so that a five-year-old can pick it up? I know. And then everybody's like, oh, it's nobody's business. If I were a reporter, I'd be asking that question. I think maybe the people of Wyndham would have wanted to know why their police officers were dropping guns around so little girls no could shit. pick them up. At some point, Gurney did get his way, and the trial was rescheduled for May 1990. In October 1989, his attorney, Albert Scheer, asked Rockingham County Superior Court in Exeter for $1,500 for what the union leader termed medical assistance, to prepare his defense and review records for Miriam Stoltz Gurney. Judge Douglas Gray approved the request. And what Cher actually wanted was not medical assistance, but a medical expert to review the files. Cher said he'd received more than 1,500 pages of medical documents on Miriam, including charts, neuropsychological evaluations, and other tests that he didn't have the training to analyze, which is a classic prosecution discovery dump. He didn't say that. I'm saying that. Cher wanted to use the money to hire a neuropsychologist to assist in preparations for Gurney's defense. Well, that makes sense because you would want to know if she actually... Right. Cher said, a neuropsychologist will enable defense counsel to understand the nature of the medical records provided by the prosecution and assess the degree of Mrs. Stoltz-Gurney's trauma. As the only witness who alleges that the defendant was involved in the alleged offenses, Mrs. Stoltz-Gurney is a critical witness. In particular, her recollection of the events surrounding her injury are of paramount importance. And this is me again. This highlights what will become the biggest issue, the biggest challenge for the prosecution. All they really had to go on was Miriam's recollections mm-hmm. if they wanted George Gurney to be found guilty. This might be something that's coming up later, but unless they had her statement on videotape that showed from the very beginning exactly what she said and everything that was said, I would be skeptical if she remembered it or if somebody encouraged her. Right, that becomes an issue. 
Yeah. A December 27th story in the Lynn item had the headline, Lawyer Expects High Drama in Murder Trials. The story Ooh. didn't have a byline, and even though it didn't say Associated Press, my guess it was an AP story. One of those ones they do around Christmas time when there's no news going on and they have to find something to write about. <laughs> the reporter interviewed Schur, Gurney's attorney. He works for the New Hampshire Public Defender's Office. He was not only defending Gurney, but also Kenneth Johnson, who faced the death penalty for hiring two teenage boys to kill his pregnant wife, Sharon, 36, <sighs> who was stabbed and strangled to death. A case I remember well, Anthony Puff, <sighs> and I can't remember the other kid's name. He was also representing Daniel Van de Bogart, a guy who'd been convicted on assault in two different cases, and was a suspect in the murder of Kimberly Goss, 29 of Londonderry, who was killed in September 1989. And it's weird, I remember all those cases and names, even though it was 30 or whatever years ago, because we were in the newsroom and, and we were talking about them. And Cher told the reporter he was a public defender, a job that paid $44,000 a year at the time mm. and required 60 plus hour work weeks. Ugh. But he did it out of a sense of public service. And by the way, that would be $109,173.58 today. That may mm -hmm. seem like a lot, but it's less than lawyers in private practice make. Yeah. Last year, 2022, the New Hampshire Public Defender's Office got a raise so that they now make between $60 and $125 an hour, depending on their experience and the case. The average is around $108,000 a year. And I can tell you, at least the two defending Logan Clegg worked their butts off the trial yeah, I covered job. episode 149, and they earned every penny. Anyway, Cher said it was fulfilling to help people who couldn't afford legal representation, and the public defender's office is the last line of defense for those people. He also said, that's our job, and we're very aware of it all the time. That being charged doesn't mean they did it, and they're being arrested doesn't mean they're guilty. And mm -hmm. I say good for him. But that certainly doesn't mean I think George Gurney is innocent. In February 1990, about a year after the shooting, the newspapers reported that Miriam Stoltz Gurney would be taking the stand for the state in the Ooh. trial, which was to begin May 21st in Exeter. Michael Ramsdell, the AAG, said Marion was still in therapy but improving and that she would be a key witness. Norman Crawford, the Wyndham police chief, continued to show what an idiot he was <laughs> by telling reporters that Marion's memory had fully returned mm. and there were, quote, no blank spaces. Oh, please. Bob Holler of the Boston Globe, who wrote some in-depth stories about Marion and her travails, had a feature on February 11th, 1990, that said she shocked her parents on Thanksgiving by walking and was able to attend a Christmas party thrown by her fellow Haverhill teachers at Christmas time. At the party, she laughed and reminisced and said nothing about her ordeal. Marion was still living at a rehab hospital and undergoing intensive physical therapy, but she hoped to return to the classroom in the fall. Hmm. Her friend Linda Tarosian told Holler, It's a miracle how far she's come. As far as her mental faculties, she's very lucid. She knows exactly what's going on. She follows the regular conversations of the days. She seems just perfect. Michael Ransdell, the AAG, was a little less effusive, but said he was certain she'd overcome any challenge to her competence to testify. On Valentine's Day, David Liskio, a reporter and columnist for the Lynn Item, the same one who wrote that inadequate They're Getting Away with Murder story, had a particularly annoying column talking about bad things that had happened to people on Valentine's Day. Hmm. I won't read it to you except this take on Marion's situation. With the headline, Dangerous Valentines, Liskio's column starts, Cupid's arrow can be a dangerous thing. 
sharp pointed, something known to strike when you least expect it. I was just thinking of Miriam Stoltz Gurney, a Haverhill Elementary School teacher who was shot and left for dead last February 15th, allegedly by her jealous and crazed ex-husband. <laughs> Today, Valentine's Day, she will spend long hours at a Massachusetts rehabilitation center, which for her own protection must remain unidentified. Actually, it was a New Hampshire one, but... At 48, she is trying to piece her mind and body back together after miraculously emerging from coma. Her hospital bed undoubtedly will be surrounded by flowers, cards, and candy. From talking to those who know her, Miriam Stoltz-Gurney was a good-looking woman with no shortage of admirers, yet she mysteriously clung to her worn relationship with George Gurney, <laughs> and charged with firing a bullet into her brain and dumping her body along a dirt road as if it were a spent Valentine card. <laughs> George H. Gurney Jr. Sorry. I'm not laughing at what happened. I'm laughing at his writing. His bad writing, yeah. George H. Gurney Jr., 53, armed and dangerous, a blue Valentine if there ever was one. I was just thinking of Roger D. Whittemore Jr., 52, the Swampscott man murdered in the bedroom of the lovely lady's Wyndham, New Hampshire home. The cop said Gurney burst into the place wearing camouflage fatigues, a rifle slung over his shoulder. It was an ambush, they said. Had Stephen King written a screenplay for the crime, the Rambo-esque killer would have chillingly uttered, Happy Valentine's Day. Oh, Jesus. And it's annoying how he conflates Stephen King and Rambo. You only need one or the other. The cops said Gurney beat, shot, and stabbed Winnemore, a car salesman with a wife and kids, who for years had courted the teacher on the sly. The bashing was done with fireplace tongs. The room was blood spattered. Perfect color for the holiday. Oh, my God. For Valentine's Day 1989, Stoltz Gurney had given her ex-husband a bouquet of paper flowers. After all, she was artsy. She had a certain flair. I was just thinking about whether the gift sparked something in the accused killer's mind, prompting him to track the lady down and erase her from the planet. Bye, bye, bye. One of those cases <laughs> of, if I can't have her, nobody can. Perhaps if she hadn't given him the flowers. Perhaps if Cupid's powers were less celebrated. Valentine's Day, it can be a dangerous thing. So yeah, it was Marion's fault, more or less. Yeah, blame her. Yep. Anyway, a few days later, George Gurney gave yet another interview to the Lawrence Eagle Tribune. He's probably bored. He I know, but you'd to. think he'd just shut up. He said, I know it begins to sound old after a while, but I'm as innocent today as I was on day one, and I was innocent on day <laughs> one. I think it's wonderful that Mim has recovered so well. I really do hope the best in life for her. I just didn't hurt her. I would never harm her. I didn't hurt anyone. Miriam's parents also talked, though the newspapers that mentioned it didn't quote them. They told the Lawrence Eagle Tribune that they'd struggled to cope with it all. In May, right before the trial started, Nancy West of the Union Leader talked to two women who'd been appointed Marion's guardians, Betty Jo Knapp and Sidney Tibbetts. Betty Jo was a 23-year friend of Miriam's. She said, I'm extremely proud that she has come so far. She is growing stronger and stronger. I've never seen anyone work so hard with such motivation. The two women were also temporary guardians of Miriam's estate, including her $200,000 home and possessions worth about $20,000. And I assume that means the two cats, too. Oh. Knapp said Miriam was nervous about taking the witness stand, but she added, 
I have a great deal of confidence in her. Obviously, she wouldn't be human if she wasn't a little nervous. Napsa Marion bore no obvious physical scars from the shooting, and that her hair is shorter and a little darker. But, Nancy West wrote, she is the same beautiful woman with whom she shared so many years of friendship. She is the kindest person I ever knew, Knapp said. With less than a week to go before the trial began, Judge Douglas Gray granted a motion by Gurney's lawyers to allow them to individually question each potential juror about their views on the possibility that Gurney may not take the witness stand. Gurney's attorney, Albert Schur, had been joined by public defender James Moore, and they told the judge that they also wanted to ask prospective jurors about the state's burden of proof and Gurney's presumption of innocence and their views about media coverage and the presence of media in the courtroom. And by the way, Judge Gray, a year later, would preside over the circus-like Pamela Smart trial. Ah, uh, yes. In the same courtroom. Which we probably will never cover. We will never cover that. Gray also granted the state's motion for the jury to view Stoltz Gurney's home, the wooded area off Lowell Road in Wyndham where she was found, the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot on Route 111 where her car was found, and the exterior of Gurney's apartment in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Assistant Attorney Generals Michael Ramsdell and Mark Howard would be prosecuting the case. The defense had asked for a week's delay, but Judge Gray denied it, so the trial was ready to begin May 21st. The trial began with a pool of 167 potential jurors, and it took a week to seat a jury of seven women and seven men, two of whom would be alternates at the trial's end. The trial was about to begin on Thursday, May 31st, when the defense threw a monkey wrench into the works, by asking Judge Gray to dismiss the charges, arguing that Miriam had changed her story about what happened the night of the attack on her and Roger Whittemore, and that the state didn't tell the defense about the changes, and the defense didn't know until defense attorney Moore interviewed her a month before the trial. So what they're saying is what Miriam first said in July of 1989 was different from what she told Hmm. James Moore in April 1990. For instance, when Miriam was interviewed in July 1989, she didn't recall having sex with Whittemore or getting a phone call that night from Gurney. But in April 1990, when she talked to Moore, she said they both happened that night. Marion told Moore that she remembered hearing footsteps up the stairs leading to her bedroom before the attack. But in July 1989, she told police she became aware of Gurney only after he burst into her bedroom. Moore also said in Marion's recent deposition, she made no mention of a handgun. But in July, said Gurney had a rifle slung over his shoulder and was carrying a handgun. In Hmm. April 1990, Miriam remembered Whittemore being bound by belts and seeing him in front of the fireplace, but 10 months before, she remembered seeing him on the deck in the backyard. She also told Moore that she drove her car to the woods before being shot, but she'd initially told police that she was in the back seat and George drove. She also initially told police that George was wearing camouflage fatigues when he entered her bedroom at 11.30 p.m., but didn't say anything about them when she talked to Moore. But Assistant Attorney General Michael Ramsell argued that Miriam's story didn't change significantly and that some new details were remembered and some others forgotten, as happens with many witnesses. And also, I think, too, it depends on what Moore asks in the deposition. You know, you may be detailed at one point and then not at another. Ramsdell and co-prosecutor Mark Howard also filed a motion to bar the defense from presenting evidence from Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, a psychologist and expert on eyewitness accounts. The state's attorneys argued that Loftus hadn't interviewed Miriam 
and would testify about memory theories and the unreliability of eyewitness testimony when the state Supreme Court has ruled that expert testimony to impeach the credibility of trial witnesses is generally inadmissible. Defense attorney Albert Scheer said the jury should have knowledge about how the memory works, that it is a complicated process. He said that Loftus won't offer opinions on specific testimony. Judge Gray ruled in favor of the state on both motions, so he dismissed the arguments from the defense that Miriam had changed her story, and he also agreed with the state that Elizabeth Loftus shouldn't be allowed as an expert witness. But anyone paying attention could see that the ground was laid for the defense to go after Marion's memory. Yeah. But that was what was going to be on trial. The first order of business was a field trip. As with the field trip I went on when I covered the Logan <laughs> Plug trial in October, Gurney walked along with the jurors and everybody else. It was a sunny, mild day, and the 14 jurors toured Marion's house, but Judge Gray wouldn't let the reporters go in. There's not enough room for everyone in there, he said. Neighbors stood on their lawns and watched with reporters as the jurors, members of the court, and lawyers went into the house. Miriam's two cats roamed the yard, rubbing up against reporters and jurors, union leader correspondent John Hart wrote. And the one thing I remember the most about John Hart is when he filed his stories, instead of saying indicted, he'd always write the word indicated. <laughs> this was before autocorrect, and it was really annoying. The jury also toured the woods where Miriam was found and the parking lot of Dunkin' Donuts on Route 111 in Wyndham where her car was found. In opening statements the next day, Assistant Attorney General Mark Howard told jurors, Mim is not the same person she was. She suffered serious brain damage and cannot recall every detail of the murder, but the state will be able to prove the elements of each crime. Howard said Gurney implicated himself during several interviews with police, and by his behavior after the crimes. Every time he talked to police, he mm -hmm. made mistakes, Howard said. Defense attorney James Moore said the state can't prove Gurney killed Whittemore and wounded Miriam because he didn't do it. This case will boil down to the reliability of Marion Stoltz Gurney's memory, Moore said. He also said that she'll be in a wheelchair and seem impaired, but, quote, sympathy has no place in this courtroom and the case must be decided yeah. next. Much of what we've already covered was testified to in the trial, including Gurney's statements to police and some other stuff, so I'll just talk about some key things that we haven't already instead of like going through the whole trial. One big witness was the state's chief medical examiner, witness for the prosecution, Dr. Roger Fossum, who said at least three and possibly as many as six weapons were used to beat, stab, and shoot Winnemore. Under cross-examination, he said that using more than one weapon to commit murder would be considered unusual, and that the possibility exists that it took more than one assailant to kill Winnemore. Winnemore suffered defensive wounds that showed he struggled hard for his life, Fossum said. Assistant Attorney General Mark Howard asked Fossum if it is possible for an assailant to use more than one weapon, and Fossum said generally only during very violent battles or if one instrument becomes too bloody to use or slips out of the attacker's hand. Fossum also indicated Whittemore could have been shot first, then stabbed and beaten, but he said there is no way to know for sure. There is no evidence that Whittemore's wrists were bound during the assault, Fossum said. He said there would generally be scratching or bruising unless the hands were tied with a soft material. Stoltz Gurney told police Whittemore's hands were bound, and she said they were bound with a belt. And not to contradict the state medical examiner, 
But maybe the prosecutor should have asked, well, what about a belt? Because a belt wouldn't have necessarily left what a zip tie or ropes would leave. It also depends what kind of belt, what she meant by belt. It could have been a Was it a belt belt. of a bathrobe or was it a leather belt? Fossum agreed that 17 stab wounds, bruises, and a gunshot wound were probably caused by a fireplace tongue and poker, a knife, and possibly a second larger knife, a 22 caliber handgun, and a blunt instrument. Fossum said he has seen cases where an attacker has taken up a second weapon but usually not during a, quote, one-sided attack, unquote. After more than 4,000 autopsies, Fossum said he couldn't recall one instance where a lone assailant picked up a third, fourth, fifth, or sixth weapon, especially with somebody, potentially a victim, looking on. I say there's a first time for everything. And also, if the assailant was just wicked, wicked pissed off and going nuts on him, the gun was a little twenty-two. I think it's very possible. Fossum agreed that having two assailants would, quote, make it easier, unquote, to be engaged in a serious struggle when there was a potential victim watching. That day of the trial, Nancy West of the Union Leader interviewed a friend of Gurney who was there to watch. Hank Colazzi of Amesbury, Massachusetts, who has known Gurney since high school, exchanged a warm hello as Gurney was led into the courtroom, Nancy wrote. Colazzi later told Nancy he thinks George is innocent. He weighs 145 pounds. If George was going to do it, he would have done it in a better fashion, Colazzi said. <laughs> Colazzi used to play in a band with Gurney and was with him the night he met Miriam at a dance and blast out. Both he and George were jazz aficionados and belonged to a jazz association. Miriam went to the Taylor Ballroom in Plastown, New Hampshire that night with two other men, Colazzi said. He said, she was very striking, tall and good looking. George loved women, (laughs) as us girls at the Haverhill Gazette knew so well. Colazzi also describes Gurney as a man who never offended anyone, something I take exception to as a young woman who could say he certainly offended and creeped out many young women who worked at the newspapers that he worked at, but Colazzi is a middle-aged man, so what does he know? Colazzi said... He was a good drummer. If he had stuck to it, he could have gone places. You never saw a hair out of place. He's a good dresser, and you never saw him get his hands dirty. Colazzi and his wife, Stina, went to the wedding of Gurney and Stoltz at Miriam's house. The wedding was Gurney's fourth and Miriam's second. And interesting that while most articles found a way to mention that Marion was twice divorced, this is the first and only time we hear that George Gurney was four times divorced. Not to be judgy, but once you get up to four divorces, maybe the problem's you. Yeah, or maybe marriage is not for you. Or something. (laughs) The prior Christmas, Colosi visited Gurney at the Rockingham County House of Correction, where he found his old friend dejected because so many people had turned away from him. Colosi said, felt sorry for him being locked up for a whole year. guy. It's typical New Hampshire justice. Unquote. Yeah, I putting people in jail <laughs> before their murder charge is typical New Hampshire justice. And George is the one who asked for a delay on the start of the trial. The big day of the trial was when Miriam took the stand. She approached the witness stand in a wheelchair and then was helped to stand up and walk a few feet to the seat by a victim advocate. When she sat down, she sobbed for a minute while the advocate comforted her. And that's the photo 
Bob Laprie took that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode yes. that was in the hallway at the Union Leader. Marion's speech was slightly slurred and sometimes barely audible. She also had a lot of trouble gathering her thoughts and remembering things, but aside from that moment when she sat down, that was the only time she lost composure during her afternoon of hmm. testifying. Marion testified to a lot of what we'd already talked about, but when it came time for cross-examination, as you can imagine, the defense honed in on her inconsistencies and got her all mixed up. That's where her trouble remembering things came in, including whether George had a gun that night, whether he'd called her house, as she told police he had, and even what year they were married and divorced. She gave varying and sometimes confused accounts of who drove to the woods, saying she worried at first that Whittemore's body was in the trunk. She was concerned about Whittemore and whether he was alive or not. Now, she knows Whittemore wasn't in the trunk, she testified, because I've read enough articles in the paper to know what happened. Sure, George's defense lawyer asked her about the articles. Marion said she read three newspaper accounts, but insisted they didn't help her remember the attack. She also gave conflicting accounts of where she was standing when Gurney allegedly attacked Whittemore in front of her fireplace with the tongs. Answering another apparent discrepancy, Marion said, I never said that. Maybe I did. I don't know. Mm. Courtroom observers afterwards said that her testimony damaged the case, and I believe it did. But on the other hand, if the prosecution had not put her on the stand, they wouldn't have had a case. That's so right. what are you going to do? Too bad investigators didn't do a better job investigating and getting some actual evidence. The defense also implied that both investigators and Miriam's friend, Betty Jo Knapp, who was never called to testify, coached her on what to remember about that night. Assistant Attorney General Michael Ramsdell told a reporter after that day's testimony that although Miriam has expanded her initial memories on some points and forgotten other details, her identification of George Gurney as her assailant has remained consistent. Dr. Glenn Higgins, a neuropsychologist from Northeast Rehabilitation Center in Salem, New Hampshire, where Miriam was a patient, testified about her progress, saying her memory is impaired. The memory is a tricky thing. The only way to know if it is real is if there is independent corroboration, Higgins said. I'm sure the prosecution was saying that. Thanks a lot, Glenn. The defense cross-examined State Police Lieutenant Michael Harrow, who had interviewed Gurney the time he took the polygraph. Defense attorney Moore brought up how the cops had lied to Gurney during that interview. Mm. The bottom line is you wanted a confession and didn't get it, Moore That's said to right. Harrow. I'm not sure I'd put it that way, Harrow said. Perot said investigators told Gurney that Miriam, who at that point still couldn't talk, nodded when asked if Gurney was the assailant when she really hadn't. She wasn't able to nod or anything else at that point. But also, although that's a lie, they didn't do it, but that's not the way they should have questioned her anyway. So I know. Perot also testified that police were careful never to give Miriam information that mm -hmm. could have let her form any conclusions, but waited until she remembered details on her own. I doubt that. I know. The prosecution showed jurors two camouflage hats seized from Gurney's apartment, but said they showed no traces of blood. Miriam said Gurney was wearing combat fatigues, boots, and gloves the night of the attack, but police recovered only the two hats. And remember, Gurney told Susie Forrest at the Eagle Tribune after his arrest that he didn't own camouflage fatigues and hadn't since his military days in the 1950s. Perot said when Gurney was arrested, he insisted he didn't own any camouflage outfits. But Gurney's landlord, Kenneth Spaulding, testified that he saw Gurney wearing camouflage pants once in the springtime, but he wasn't certain. <laughs> 
Gertie's attorney, Albert Scherer, differentiated between owning and wearing camouflage clothes when <laughs> Susie Forrest took the stand. You didn't talk about the last time he wore camouflage clothing, Scherer's Forrest? No, she said. Just that he never owned any. Yes, she said. And I'm like, what <laughs> the hell does it matter? Wyndham, New Hampshire town clerk, Joan Tuck, testified that she saw Gurney wearing camouflage fatigues in 1985 or sometime before when he went to her office to register his car. Tuck said that when she read Forrest's interview with Gurney in the Eagle Tribune in July 1989, after he was arrested, mm -hmm. saying he didn't own such clothing, she told police that Gurney wore camouflage fatigues to her office. And during cross-examination by Moore, said sportsmen sometimes wear similar gear during hunting and fishing season when they purchase sporting licenses. <laughs> so I think Moore was trying to say that she was just confused and somebody else. Well, to be fair, it's kind of weird that you would remember the pants some guy was wearing in your office four years before. If he was a weird guy who gave her the creeps. And yeah, like, that and she be. And Wyndham's a small town and she knows yeah. who he is. And it's like, That's oh, there's true. George in his camouflage pants. That's true. Tuck said he was wearing them whether or not they were his. I, can't <laughs> tell. I thought the defense was splitting hairs. Yes, of course they were. And also, if he wore someone else's, then he could have also worn them when he shot Miriam That's and Roger. That's right. But no, I think sometimes you remember, oh yeah, that guy, like yeah, especially George, who was a dapper dresser. And then yeah. like, what, he's wearing camouflage because maybe he was going hunting or something, you know. And after the prosecution rested, the defense did the standard asking the judge to dismiss the charges. Assistant Attorney General Michael Ramsdell said the evidence presented by the state could lead a reasonable jury to convict Gurney of the three crimes. Judge Gray ruled in favor of the state. They almost always do yeah. when that happens in trial. Roger Whittemore's brother, son, and his wife, Ann Whittemore, were in the court, but they would not comment and said they don't want to until after the trial is over. Lee Gurney, who was married to George Gurney before he married Marion, said she came from Pennsylvania to support George. We oh. just came up to let George know we're with him, she said. Nice. Gurney's grown stepchildren, Stefan and Sarah, were also in court. I think there's been a terrible mistake, Sarah said. The defense's strongest witness was Dr. Donald Davidoff, the director of the Alzheimer's unit at the Cushing Hospital in Framingham, Mass., and an instructor at Harvard University's medical school. Davidoff said that when trying to backfill gaps in their memories, brain injury patients sometimes come up with plausible but false recollections. He said Gurney was the likely candidate to fill in Marion's memory gaps because they were married for five years and had a continuing intimate relationship with many past and recent memories. He said he interviewed Marion for a total of 15 hours. She has a lot of images of George Gurney stored, making the likelihood of choosing George as the attacker that much more likely, he said. When Davidoff first interviewed Miriam, she briefly confused Gurney as her bed partner the night of February 15, 1989. Mm. George was in bed with me. No, wait, Roger was in bed with me, Miriam corrected herself in her account of the assault to Davidoff. And I'll tell you, you know, sometimes if you're tired and shit, you can say the wrong name of a person. Yes. Especially somebody in her condition. After recounting sketchy details of the night, Miriam asked, does that put George in a bad light? <laughs> Davidoff said. Miriam said she didn't remember anyone getting shot. Miriam handles memory like a child and may distort her recollections when they involve strong emotions 
and although her recovery has been remarkable, she becomes overwhelmed by complex information, Davidov said. She simply operates cognitively as a five to eight-year-old would. She is just as likely to pick out similar events as those that actually happen. Victims of impaired memory aren't lying when they create false recollections, but rather they are trying to master a frightening situation by coming up with a plausible explanation, he said. He told jurors of an Australian case in which a woman was raped while watching a psychologist on television, blended her memory, and accused the psychologist, ah! whose alibi was airtight, since he was in front of television cameras at the time. Apparently it must have been a live broadcast. Yeah, wow. Also testifying for the defense was state police fingerprint technician Darlene Preventure, who testified that a fingerprint found on the steering wheel of Stoltz Gurney's car was compared to fingerprints of both victims. Gurney, two men identified as boyfriends of Miriam, Dr. Charles Maycumber and Tom Fox, and others without finding a match. And as we know, fingerprint identification is faulty. And also, fingerprints can stick around for a long time, so who knows whose that was. Nancy West wrote that on the last day of the defense's case, Gurney appeared calm and confident, as he has throughout the trial. Hi, darling, he said in the hallway to ex-wife Lee Gurney. <coughs> We're here for you, she told him. The defense rested its case without calling Gurney to the witness stand. James Moore told the union leader when asked why Gurney didn't testify, what can Mr. Gurney say except I didn't do it and he's already <laughs> said that many times. The jury was out for two days but ended up deadlocked six to six. A mistrial was called and a new trial was scheduled for November. Betty Jo Knapp, who telephoned Marion at the Greenery Rehabilitation Center in Brighton, Mass., where Marion was now recovering, said, Mim still feels confident of the final outcome. She's ready to go again if need be. She's got the strength. She is upset, but sounded very positive. Miriam feels strongly that her recollections of the attack are accurate, Knapp said. Roger Whittemore's widow, Ann Whittemore, said she was disappointed with the mistrial, but believes the prosecutors and police did a good job. Mm. We were hoping to have it all behind us, to have it over and done with, but that's the way the system works, she said. She said also that it wasn't up to her to judge the case. I don't envy the jury. I certainly think the prosecutors and state police did everything possible. Mm. I give them high praise, she said. Hmm. Gurney asked to be let out on bail between trials, but wasn't. Yeah, so. And he ended up griping about that to the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, too. The second trial of November went about the same as the first, but with a couple little tweaks. For instance, the state threw in a jailhouse snitch. No. Who said Gurney confessed to him. As if. That he did it, but he also said under cross-examination he got a deal for his testimony. Mm. I don't know why the prosecution even bothers. Marion's testimony went a little better, but also with many of the same problems, and the defense used her previous confusion to make her sound even more confused in this one. She did say, however, that she didn't think George would have any trouble overpowering Roger, even though Roger was 300 pounds, especially since Roger was asleep when attacked. There was an implication that he was very out of shape, but I also think the reporters didn't want to say it because they didn't want to, like, disrespect the mm. dead guy or something. This time, the jury deliberated for 14 hours with 11 voting guilty and one voting to acquit, <laughs> and it was another mistrial. Prosecutor Michael Ramsdell said they wouldn't bring it to trial again because it was hurting Miriam's recovery. One funny thing is the newspapers kept saying she was 48, even though it was now a year and a half since the shooting when she was 48. I guess once you're shot, you don't age anymore. You just stay that same <laughs> you age. You stay the same age. 
Jurors who talked to the press afterwards said they believe Miriam's account as well as the circumstantial evidence against George. The jailhouse snitch was a non-starter for them. Yeah. The jurors also told reporters what the issues with the one holdout were. She didn't talk to reporters, but the other jurors were happy to. She thought Miriam had been coached on her testimony. She didn't understand how Miriam could remember some things from that night, but not, for instance, what she was wearing that night. She didn't know how the cops could be sure George wasn't home when his landlord couldn't remember if he'd gone out or not. She didn't understand how Miriam could not remember it was George for four months, etc. One of the other jurors told the union leader they thought the holdout was nitpicking and had put Miriam on trial instead of George. That the holdout jurors seemed very anti-Miriam in general. Ann Whittemore said she was glad it's over. I knew when I left court last Monday it was over and the prosecutor wouldn't try the case again. And I said, thank God for that. It's time to just say it's done. It's over. Hmm. Miriam took the hung jury hard, her friend said. On top of it, Medicaid had a lien on her house because her treatment was so expensive and the bank was looking up for closing. She was still in a rehab hospital more than 18 months after she was shot. She wasn't in any condition to go back to teaching, her friend Sydney Tibbetts said. Tibbetts said, I don't know where she's going to go from here. I don't know what's going to happen. She's lost everything, everything Mm. because of this. And this is something I don't ever think I can forgive that man for. George Gurney's life was also fucked up. Life as I know it is a thing of the past, he told a reporter in December after the second mistrial. My life was nice, comfortable, middle class. Then it was turned upside down and most of it destroyed. I hope people give me a chance. He said he (laughs) lost his home, his car, and many friends. Technically, I have no job, no credit, no money. I'm going to try to rebuild my life. I just don't know how yet. Bob Holler of the Boston Globe did a follow-up with Miriam on the two-year anniversary of the shootings in February 1991. She was still in a rehab hospital, and doctors were saying she might have to spend the rest of her life in institutions. Oh, God. She was teaching art at an after-school program nearby two days a week, but doctors said she likely would never be able to teach full-time again. She said she had no dreams or plans, but was hoping to get into an assisted living place in Derry, New Hampshire, if Medicaid would approve it. Then, in July 1993, a year and a half after that last story, and four and a half years after Miriam was shot, Bob Holler had a cheerier article in the Boston Globe. Miriam was back in her house in Wyndham with Tom Fox, one of the men she'd been dating when she was shot. A photo with the article shows her hugging her cat. Fox's support had made it possible for her to keep her house, and she'd moved back in the previous fall. She was even able to drive and had a sweet 1981 Mustang to tool around in. She'd even been able to go skiing twice the previous winter. But she was still pissed off at George Gurney. She said... The thought of him walking around while I've had to go through all I've gone through still galls me. Fox, who was a suspect and said he was followed by police 24 hours a day until Gurney was arrested, said he'd also like to see justice done, mostly for Miriam's sake. Miriam said she was looking for employment, possibly writing and illustrating, and was thinking of writing a book. George Gurney died in November 2010, 20 years after his second trial ended in a hung jury. The death notice, there was no obituary, indicates that he'd remarried. It was his fifth wife, and she predeceased him. Miriam Stoltz died on June 21st, 2021, at the age of 79. She had been living at a care facility, but it wasn't clear if it was because of her age or what. In April 2022, the New Hampshire Attorney General's Office ruled her death a homicide, 
related to the injuries from her shooting after getting results of her autopsy from Massachusetts, where she'd lived, as reported by Nancy West, who now is a digital news outlet in New Hampshire, In-Depth NH. Mike Garrity, spokesman for the New Hampshire Attorney General's Office, said, The Massachusetts Office of the Chief Medical Examiner conducted an autopsy and determined that Marion's cause of death was cardiovascular disease with a contributory cause of an old gunshot wound. Her manner of death is homicide. Since Miriam was the main witness in the case and is dead, as is the perpetrator, the case remains closed. And that is the story Interesting. of Miriam Stoltz. By the time of the second trial, she had changed her name back to Miriam Stoltz and gotten rid of the gurney. I fully believe George Gurney did it. There just wasn't enough information in the story. There was stuff that he constantly sent her letters begging her to take him back. I think as much as I hated that misogynistic Valentine's Day column that David Liskio wrote, I do think George was harboring hopes they would get yes. back together. She left him the Valentine because she's a nice person who felt bad for him. Then he found out she was spending the night with Roger Whittemore, yes. who he hated. And I think there was probably a lot more to it. The entire case rested on poor Marion, yes. who made a remarkable recovery. I know it's easy for me to say with all these years in hindsight, but it just sounds like the police didn't do as thorough a scene investigation as they could have. George had plenty of time to get rid of his camouflage clothes and the gun. If it was nowadays, there would have been more surveillance cameras. Yes. There's more forensic tools and maybe a little better understanding of how men like him operate. You know, don't just rely on the suspects for your evidence. And I know. Miriam. That was lazy. Yeah, I do think he did it, but I understand why somebody would vote. It's not that I don't believe Miriam. It's that I don't believe the cops would allow her to just organically remember what happened without prompting her. And memory, like the doctor was saying, and it's just like when you're interviewing kids, a false memory can be planted and it's unreliable. It and you can been... be absolutely positive Yes. A memory. Once your memory is messed with that way, it, it's hard to change it back. Like with a lot of these cases we talk about, the police work was kind of lazy, I think. And I know they don't have the same tools that we have today, but we were both alive back then. We know that there were ways they had tools they could have used. Like There are things that they could have done a little bit more than rely on, number one, lying to him and using the read technique or whatever they did to try to get him to confess. <laughs> and a stupid friggin' lie detector, which those machines should not even be allowed to be used because they're just ridiculous. I know. And, and I think, it's just too, like... they depend too much on them. I think he did wear the camouflage clothes, and I think he wore them maybe to get himself psyched up. Yeah. But also to wear clothes he could discard, easily discard. And also, he, if somebody I mean, saw him, they wouldn't necessarily recognize him. Saw him in the, you know, it's very dark. But, it really um, sucks for her because, like you said, she lost everything. He's, he's whining. He could have gotten another job as a car salesman. It doesn't matter if he's a salesman. Or an ad, he could right. give it. And he yeah. did get another job. And we always felt, my friend Denise and I and other young women at the Haverhill Gazette were creeped out by him and felt there was something creepy about him. And I'm not saying that that makes him a murderer. 
But, you know, read the gift of fear. When somebody gives you that feeling, there's stuff going on, you're processing and maybe not even knowing. And he was overly attentive, especially to Denise, who's statuesque, a very attractive, tall, thin, statuesque woman, like the opposite of me. Um, No, because I'm short and back then I wasn't fat, but, you know, I wasn't glamorous or anything by any stretch of the imagination. I looked like I just come out of some eighth grade class, but he was the kind of person you wanted to say, look, get away and leave me alone. But we were all too polite. You know, Denise was way too polite. Especially back then. It was like so common. Anyway. Anyway. So do you have an NNW? Yes, I do. (laughs) And it's one you've watched, Escaping Twin Flames, um, on Netflix. Actually, I haven't watched that. I watched the one on, and I told you about it, but it's on a streamer you don't get. But I had just watched it like a month ago, and I told you, I don't want to watch Escaping Twin Flames right now because it looks like the exact same thing. Like that other one was like a three episode. And I told you all about it when I watched it, but apparently you've I thought that we were talking about Escaping Twin Flames. No, Escaping Twin Flames wasn't out yet, but go ahead. Okay, so it's about a weird cult type thing. It is a cult. It's not a religious cult at first. It starts out as a, a movement to to help you find your soulmate. Well, it's basically this couple, this couple on YouTube. Yeah. It starts it, it, out with them just doing YouTube videos. Did you watch it? Are you no, going to tell watched, the story no, of it? No, I watched the other one. Okay, you go ahead. So yes, it's this annoying fucking couple. I think maybe what has saved me from ever being in any Anything like a cult like this is the fact that I'm wicked cynical and wicked judgmental. <laughs> oh, they are and, as annoying as fuck, though. Yes. Well, first of all, the first thing that would totally turn me off from anything like this would be when the person is showing off all their luxury home, their car, and how much money they have and bragging about it. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but at first glance would turn me off. Later on, it would really turn me off as I went further in, but I'll talk about that later but so it's about this annoying couple and these poor people that are just just like with every other cult they're searching for something and i blame our society for teaching people that you have to pair up with somebody or you won't be happy you know what people be happy with yourself they preach love yourself but they don't really mean it they mean you have to find somebody you have to find somebody and in part of it too is celebrity culture because apparently and i had never heard of it because i don't i'm way out of it on celebrity culture but this whole oh he's my twin flame so now people feel like they have to find their twin flame so anyways bad reenactments i took a half a point off there really aren't any reenactments but they have these weird cartoony things that i don't think are necessary when someone's talking about something they'll show this weirdly drawn it's not really a cartoon they're like little drawings i just didn't think they were necessary so i'm taking half a point off for that um narrative cliches no i'm not taking any points off they have some of the stuff that other people have but not as much they did focus on at the beginning there's a mother of a woman that had joined that hasn't seen her daughter for a long time and she said something about how she had quit smoking but then when she got the letter from her daughter cutting her off she started and so then they focus in on the cigarette and her fingers i didn't take anything off because it wasn't a lot racial gender obtuseness no most of the people are white all the people in this documentary are people 
involved. And there are a couple women of color, no men of color, but most of the people that joined are, are white. One of the women, a uh, black woman says, you know, everyone in this place is white. So I didn't know how I was going to find my twin flame because I think she wanted to find somebody who, who, who maybe was black like her. And she's like, I'm not going to find anyone here. Lack of good visuals. No, as a matter of fact, they had a lot of good visuals. One of the women who was a big part of her name was Keely. She had this hard drive that somebody else who had been in a higher position had given her for safekeeping and she still had it when she left. So she had all their videos, including uh-huh. videos that had not been released or were not complimentary to them. So they showed a lot of them. The guy is a total obnoxious piece of shit. His wife's an idiot. Missing pieces. I'm taking a point away. There were a couple things that they kind of glossed over. I wanted to know more. There was one woman, part of the thing. (laughs) So if you think you have a twin flame, like even if it's your ex, they encouraged them to go after them. It doesn't matter. You are meant to be together. So this woman was pretty much stalking her ex. He got a restraining order. She had a story about how she was at his apartment talking to his roommate and he came in and she said, I called him out on the way he'd been acting and he ended up getting the restraining order against me. And I'm like, you don't just get a restraining order because you told someone off. So that was kind of glossed over. But then she went out dancing And he was in the same club and he saw her there and thought she had followed him there. And I believe her when she said she didn't, because I don't know how big a a town they lived in, but you know, they could run into each other. So he called the police and she was in jail for 14 months because she didn't have bail money. She didn't have anyone she could call. So I wanted to know more and not to blame her. I just wanted to know more. I was, And then there was another one where they forced this poor young girl, some stupid guy that had sent her a Facebook message. Oh, he's your twin flame. You have to go to him. He had a criminal record. They didn't tell the whole story about him. And I wanted to know more about that too. And I know some of it's probably privacy and all this shit, like they blurred his face and pictures, but still I wanted to know more. So I'm taking a point off for missing pieces. They also wanted to know more about lots of things. I just felt like there wasn't enough. It was only three episodes and I needed more. Inaccuracy and acronyms, no. Especially the fact that they had a lot of those videos. These people can't refute what they were saying in, right. in the video. Storytelling. The storytelling was fine, except for I would have liked more episodes. Freshness. I hadn't heard of it, although you said there's a other one about it. I just decided to watch it, even though sometimes these kind of documentaries piss me off a lot. So I wasn't sure if I was right. in the mood, but I did. The other one is called Desperately Seeking Soulmate, mm-hmm. and it's on Prime. It just came out this year, too. And it's just weird that two documentaries, basically the same length and everything. I'd like to watch that one just to see if there's different people on. Repetition, no. Beating the drum, no. Really, they didn't beat the drum and they could have. They didn't need to in a way because they showed so many videos of these two, especially the guy. The wife usually just sits there like, although she's annoying as fuck too. They didn't need to beat the drum because you could tell pretty much how bad right it was and the guy's a phony piece of shit at first it's not religious but then he started bringing god and religion into it and he starts looking more like jesus he's oh well those pictures of jesus are obviously me i mean look at me i look just like him yeah it's like fuck you buddy and and so like later it's just like in like jonestown and a lot of these other ones and in scientology it reminded me a lot of scientology and they use the same techniques and making people confess to shit but also making 
making people spend all this money on the stupid bogus training. Right. And that's how they get their money. If I had been a member, first of all, I wouldn't because I hate him. But if I had gotten sucked in and was like sitting there not being able to pay my bills and then seeing him bragging about his fucking Porsche and, and his fucking hot tub and pool and all this shit, I'd be like, fuck you. That would be enough to make me quit. Right. I just don't get um, it. I don't. I, I of, feel bad for them, but I don't get it. One of the big things desperately seeking soulmate focus on, and I'd be interested if this one, actually the major theme of it is how most of the people were women. He and yes. his wife, Shelley, kind of forced people into relationships. Yes. So they start forcing people and convincing them to be in a same-sex relationship, even though they're... And they, he gets off on manipulating and forcing them to do gender reassignment. Yeah. And there's also like a pyramid scheme aspect. Yes. Did they have the couple, they live somewhere in the South, and it's two women who are same-sex couple who are actually lesbians. Yes. They only had them on for a short time. They were a big part of the other they one. They focused yeah. on, they started with this girl, Keely, and her sister, Marley, and they were a big part of it. And there was this woman, Al. So they focused on certain members. I like the way they did it because they went through their whole, you know, why they joined and their lives. And it's sad. There's one woman that has an identical twin sister who is still in there, is like sucked in. It just makes me so angry. I watched The Vow. I didn't finish watching that because it was way too long and boring by the end. You know, on HBO. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, Yeah. where they branded women. It's all the similar. And I was waiting to hear that the guy had forced the woman to sleep with him. At least he didn't do that that I know of. At least in the other one, maybe it's because I'm cynical too, but to me, he was so obviously fake and just getting off on the power trip of... Oh, I know one thing. Talk about getting off on manipulating people. (laughs) Yeah, he had this, the whatever diet, had all this really (laughs) high fat food. You had to eat it all. And this one woman, Keely, who was a a petite woman, she said, I gained 70 pounds in nine months. Oh my God. It was all this like red meat and carbs and cheese. He's like trying to kill people. It's almost like he's such an asshole that he's like, I'm going to see what I can make people do. Yes, exactly. Like I'm going to just experiment. I think that, I think that had a lot to do with it, actually. I think he's a fucking weirdo. They had on the other one, a high school friend of his talking about what he was like in high school. Oh, I'm going to have to watch that He always had these big ideas and wanted to be the center of things and was kind of a performer. And then there was some people who I didn't totally buy that were like, well, Shelly's actually the manipulator here. They did say that about her. They just had a small part of how they met. Well, she's the one that got him in. And I think what she got him into, I don't think she's a manipulator. I think what happened was she was into all that new age shit and he saw that yeah. and said oh that's and a he good saw way. the opportunity yeah. right because he was always had schemes like money making schemes yes. and stuff when and he they was... mentioned that only in passing they kind of focused on all the mem the ex-members right. and oh these are just people who are disgruntled it's like well why are they disgruntled just because like, someone's disgruntled doesn't mean what they're saying isn't true <laughs> and why why right. would there be all these disgruntled people i feel bad for the people that join these things but i also i have no understanding of how how it happened because to me i would just be like 
like, fuck that. And no, I just I, see somebody like, like him and I'd be like, that guy's do. an ass. Twin flame, who gives a shit? No, I don't believe but, in that. I don't believe there's a soulmate. I don't believe in it, anything like that. Right. And part of it is because celebrities are so full of shit. And so, so oh, so and so's my twin flame. Because they oh, showed a lot of fuck. that. And the other one at the beginning, celebrities are always talking about it. And so people think, oh, well, that's what I need to do because look how cool they are. And, and they, but they get divorced after five years. And it's not like I'm saying you can't have lasting love with somebody. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you can have lasting love with lots of people. There's yeah. a lot of people that you meet in your life. There's a lot of people in the world that you could meet and find a connection with and for the rest of your life, be with that person if that's right. what you want, if you both want it. But there's not, oh, there's one person. And if, if I don't have that one person, there'll be nobody. Come on, right. people. And when the other person isn't into it. I know the other person's yeah. like no fuck off I'm getting a restraining my... order well, this other poor woman whose daughter joined and then the daughter told her no and now I'm going through the whatever your, right. your gender you know your divine gender or whatever. and the mother's like you never expressed that you wanted to be right. that you felt like you were a man before oh but I know well they did that, that to a lot of they did that they to, did a, lot it to a lot of women I mean that was women. the big that was well they had to because at least the one I watched was yeah they said there were too many women for the thing to work they yeah. needed couples because and like ninety percent of the people are women so they had well, to start because they started telling them it can only be another person member it used to right. be anybody but that wasn't working out because they got people with their straining orders because people right. weren't into it and they're like no to keep making money they had to start forcing and people. that poor young woman that they made be with that guy in Utah she didn't know him I know. she moved there when they showed on the video she's like almost crying like did they show because they showed on the prime one how he would just verbally abuse people and insult yes. them on their he's a fucking yeah. asshole reminded me a lot of the leah remini one because people would do that whatever they call it when they have those stupid fake right. sessions and right. people berate them and stuff and it's right. so similar what was your final score oh my final score is 8.5 oh, i think it's good. worth watching and i would like to watch the other one so I yeah de- desperately seeking soulmate on prime but you can get up for like a month i like to one. watch more than one if there's more than one documentary on the same subject yeah, focus is different I start watching Escaping Twin Flames and I watch about two minutes. I'm like, it's too soon from when I watched the other one and I just can't stand watching three episodes with this guy in it right I'd now. I'd like to punch that guy in the face. I would too. I, he's such a fucking asshole. Okay. On that note, we should Anyways. probably get going. Yes. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. Sorry, I'll do that again. I just sounded really like mad when I said that. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this hang is on, Crime and Stuff. Hang on, the internet just skipped when you said your name. <sighs> yeah, probably. Now you're frozen. Okay, maybe it's because I was sitting still.